So over the last few weeks, John's uh, taken us through a series on prayer. Um, We've been talking about praying to the Father, praying through the Son, and praying in the Spirit. Um, So if you missed any of those, we have them them available on the website or on podcast. Um, You can have a listen to those. And yeah, it's it's definitely worth a listen. There's a lot of encouragement in them. Um, So yeah, well worth catching up on. And today I'm going to continue the theme of prayer, and we're going to take a journey through the Lord's Prayer. And I'm sure that it's a a prayer that you're familiar with. It's, I would say, undoubtedly the most common prayer. It's still said regularly in churches and schools across the country and beyond. And so we're going to be breaking that down a bit, looking at what each part means for us today, and a, a little bit of application as well about how we can put some of those things into practice so that we are living out what we're praying. So the Lord's Prayer is mentioned in both Luke 11 and Matthew 6, but it's written um, in a kind of more full full version in Matthew 6. Um, So this is where we're going to be reading from today. And it comes as part of the Sermon on the Mount, so it's surrounded by some of Jesus' most famous teachings. And there's huge amounts of great advice for living in there. So it includes the Beatitudes, which we recently done a series on. Um, It includes themes about money, about loving your enemies, about anxiety, marriage, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's all really, you know, relevant stuff for the way that we live our lives today. So we're going to be having a look at some of that content around um, the Lord's Prayer as well. Some of the the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Yeah, some of that stuff. But yeah, we're mostly going to be zoning in on the Lord's Prayer. So let's read that now from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 onwards. And Jesus said, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you might also have heard the add-on, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. So that was found in some of the later manuscripts of the book of Matthew, but it's not really included in a lot of today's Bibles, but I was certainly brought up with that addition tagged on the end. Um, so I'm going to include it today for my own nostalgia, um, but I think it's, it's a really important part of the prayer as well. <clears throat> So let's dig into this and see where it takes us. So the start of the prayer, in verse 9, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So right from the start here, we have a statement of praise to our Father and a commitment to honour God's holy name. It recognises that God's majestic and holy, but it also tells us that he's personal and loving. So if you're making notes, this is the part of the Lord's Prayer that speaks into our identity. Our identity comes not out of who we are, but it, becomes, it comes out of who he is, our Father and our Creator. We are children of God. God created each one of you with a purpose in mind, and we discover that when we first of all know that we are his sons and daughters. Our Father in heaven, he wants to have that close, intimate relationship with him, like a father to a child. Some of us might struggle with this idea of God being our father due to our own experiences of our earthly fathers. And we can sometimes think of our own dads and see their shortfalls, and we end up applying that to God, whether we realise we're doing it or not. 
You might have even had a really negative experience or even experienced abuse at the hands of your father. And so it becomes really difficult then to see God as a loving, caring dad because you've never really experienced that for yourself. Even if you've had the best dad in the world, he won't live up to God as being your father because no earthly father is perfect. And sometimes we take the imperfections of our own dads and we place them onto God. But God is not emotionally distant. He's not manipulative. He's not abusive in any way. God is not dismissive. He's not too busy for you. He's not any of the things that you might have experienced from your own dad that were negative things. God is your loving father. And he created you and he chose you as his own. He loves you deeply. He wants a close, intimate relationship with you. So we know that we can come to him as sons and daughters of the king and he hears us and he walks through everything with us. Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son to try and express to us what our father is like as one who waits for us to turn to him. He actively seeks us, he forgives us and he even honours us when we come home which is just bonkers because it should be us honouring him. But God wants that intimate relationship with us. And we should never forget who he is or lose our sense of reverence or awe of God in that. The next part says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means holy, which is pure or set apart. And we're recognizing here from the outset that God is different from us. He's set apart from us. He is sovereign over us. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing creator, God. We are to have holy reverence for God. He is holy and his name is to be honoured. And it acts as a reminder to us that we are to use God's name respectfully. Uh, when we look into the use of the word name in Hallowed Be Your Name, the Greek word onoma is used, which refers to the name of an authority character. So it shows us that God has ultimate authority over all. But this word onoma is, is derived from a word that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, but it means to know absolutely in a great variety of applications and with many implications. That's a bit of a mouthful, but basically it's saying that the name and authority of God is known absolutely in a great variety of ways, in a great variety of applications and has many implications. So it's saying that um, we're not only to honor the name of God who is in authority, but also that his name is truth. It's overall, it's in all, it goes beyond, it's higher than all other names. You know, we cannot comprehend the holiness and the power of the name of God. But in our humanness, we need to try. <laughs> and Jesus tries to give us the words to do this. He says, hallowed be your name. And I find a lot of the Psalms help as well, help us to do this. So the Psalmist in, in Psalm 77, 11 to 13 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So from the very first line of the Lord's Prayer, we're positioned to have reverence and praise for the God is so powerful, but yet deeply loves us. We can approach his throne as his children, never forgetting his majesty and holiness. So that speaks into our identity. And then verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So now we know who we are, we discover why we are. If verse 9 speaks into our identity, then this verse speaks into our purpose. We are children of God and he gives us purpose, a reason to live, a path to follow. His kingdom come, his will be done. I believe that as followers of God, we've got a purpose on earth that is collective, but also individual purposes. So our collective purpose, first of all, is to love God and to love people, which is the overarching vision of Hope Church. We are to dedicate our lives to loving God through our attitudes, through our behaviours, and through a whole lifestyle which honours God and glorifies him in all that we do and say. And out of that love for God and love from God, that two-way relationship with God, comes an overflow of love for others. When we're in line with the kingdom of God, we can't help but love other people. Our collective purpose as Christians is to be salt and light on the earth. So in the same sermon as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, and I'm reading this from the message version, it says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. So this is what God's kingdom looks like here on earth. It's about us sharing and spreading the light of God in everything that we say and do. We want to uh, see people brought into relationship with him. So by opening up to others, by being in relationship with and with loving God, we are then prompted to love other people and they want to open up and come to know God too. So our collective purpose is to love God and share his love with others. But then I also believe that we each have an individual purpose as well. One of the values of the church is to help people to find their God-given purpose. And we want to see every member of Hope Church living out what God has put them on this earth to do. So we really believe in, in people contributing to the body of the church, whether that's serving within these four walls or going beyond into the community of Lytham or even further than that. We believe in every member playing their part using the gifts and talents that God's given them. And I believe that every single person has something to offer. It might be seemingly small to you, but every person has got something to offer. And I don't think that that's restricted by age or anything. Um, you might have noticed the words a bit funny today. That's because my eight-year-old was helping with the words. You know, he's, he's eight years old and he's already getting involved. And, and he put the communion cups out on the chairs too. You know, we give him little jobs. We want him to be involved in serving the church um, from the age of eight years old. And so I don't think there's any kind of restrictions on people playing their part. So maybe it's, I don't know, making the best coffee in Lytham. Maybe it's taking your elderly neighbor or your sick relative shopping. Maybe you're the best at washing up. Maybe you're good at conversations with people. Maybe you're skilled in admin finance. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. 
There's all these things that all contribute to the body of the church. So if you're not sure what your part is, we can help you find out. We have a thing called a shape questionnaire. Um, you can come and speak to me afterwards and I'll give you one of those and you can find your shape and start living in it. Because we want to see God's kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're not resigning ourselves to fate when we say this, but we're praying that God's perfect purpose will be accomplished in this world as well as the next. And that's something else that I believe. I believe that there's um, a crossover between this life and the next. I don't think that when we get to heaven, we forget who we were on earth or we get a new download into our minds of brand new information. But I believe that we take our memories with us, that we take our understanding and wisdom and even relationships into eternity with us. And so the purpose that God gives us individually, <clears throat> I believe that that lasts beyond earth and goes into eternity. And there's a continuation of God using our skills and abilities in the next life. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We need to be investing in things of heaven, aligning ourselves with God's will now. And that can look different for every person, but it will definitely involve loving God and loving people. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> so then we have verse 11, which says, give us this day our daily bread. And this speaks to us of God's provision. So when we consider what we've talked about so far, we can see our identity is found in God and that he has a purpose for each one of us. And now we see that he provides for us everything that we need to be able to fulfill his purposes. God provides for our practical needs, which we'll come to in a moment, but he also provides for our spiritual needs, our emotional needs, for every need that we have. And when God gives us a purpose to fulfill, he's not going to see us fall flat on our faces. He wants to provide us with everything that we need to be able to see that purpose fulfilled. He'll open doors for us that need to be opened. He'll have his hand on everything. But I think sometimes we find it frustrating because God only gives us enough for today. He'll only tell us the next step. He doesn't always give us that bigger picture. I think sometimes that's because it would scare us. Um, but also because God wants us to rely on him. He doesn't want us to think we're doing it in our own strength. He wants us to rely on him. And this is a concept that God's been teaching his people since the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, we read about the Israelites grumbling because they had it better in Egypt, even though that they'd been in slavery, they'd been mistreated. They were grumbling because they missed the food. So God provided them with manna. And he's very clear about how it's to be used. So in Exodus 16, verses 16 to 20, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. That's a delightful picture, isn't it? <laughs> but as disgusting as that is, here we see a visual of God's provision in action. 
God gives us what we need for today. And he does it like that so that we learn to trust him, so that we learn to rely on him for our daily needs. In the Sermon on the Mount, after teaching the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 31 to 34, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus here is teaching the same principle that God tried to teach the Israelites in the desert. He's our provider. He provides our needs daily. He doesn't want us to be concerned about the future, but he wants us to trust him. So don't worry for tomorrow. God will provide as we rely on him and seek him above everything else. Do you know, I don't know about you, I can find it so hard to let go of things. I'm a bit of a hoarder. Um, I like to keep things that have sentimental value to me. I have literally boxes of stuff of my kids' pictures. Uh, you, you couldn't even, like, some of it's just scribbles, but um, you couldn't call it artwork, that's for sure. But, but to me, I just feel such attachment to it, and I, I find it really hard to get rid of stuff like that. Um, we recently had a, a clear-out in our house so that we could make a, a home office space. And I needed to have John with me as I was sorting through things. I, I literally had notes from my GCSE um, revision. Um, I had song lyrics that I used to sing as a teenager, things like that, that, you know, that I've kept since I was 16. And I needed John with me to say, you really don't need that. <laughs> uh, like, you have not looked at that since you were 16. Why are we keeping that? Um, and so I, I definitely needed him to kind of keep me on that um, yeah, determination to, to get rid of a lot of stuff that I didn't need. And I also like to keep things that I might find useful later on. You know, if you come across a good tub or a good box, you know, I, w I want to be keeping that. <laughs> I, I think I'm getting better, but it, it does hurt my heart a little bit when I put it in the recycling. But um, I think I am getting better at that. Maybe ask John. Um, but occasionally, I am able to take a step back and think, I really don't need all this stuff. Like, what am I doing? Why do I want to keep all this? I can't take it with me to heaven, you know. What, it's just stuff. What am I doing? Um, and Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God needs to be our treasure. He needs to be the thing that we go after. We need to have open hands with everything else, everything that we own. After all, God gave us all these things anyway, and everything belongs to him. We're not owners of the things that we have here on earth. We are stewards of those things. God is our sustainer and provider. And it's a misconception, really, to think that we provide for our own needs. We must trust God daily for him to provide what he knows that we need. And a way that we can respond to this is through our tithes and offerings. And this is a, a biblical principle that John and I have always stood by. We've always given at least 10% of our earnings into the church and we'll continue to do that. I know that may seem a little bit strange because the church pays John and then John gives 10% of it back. Um, but we're not paying into the church as such. We're paying into the kingdom of God. We're saying to God, we put him first. The first of our monthly wages. Not the bit that's left over at the end, but the first. 
we're acknowledging his provision in our lives by giving back to God what is already his. Um, I remember a time just after we were married and we were struggling financially. Um, and we decided in our wisdom that we would give more than 10% of our wages um, into the church as a statement of faith. And so we gave 10% of what we needed to be earning rather than 10% of what we were actually earning. Um, and we, did, we kept doing that until one of the church leaders told us to stop it because we were getting into debt. And so for us, it was a position of heart. It was a position of faith, a, you know, a statement to God. Um, but we also need to be wise stewards of the money that God gives us. But God has graciously seen our hearts. He constantly provides for us. We live in a beautiful house. We drive a nice car. John wears fancy trainers. And uh, none of this matches up with our earnings, past or present. But it's just the blessings of God. We're so blessed by his constant provision in our lives. And so I just want to say that if anybody feels that they need help and guidance in this area, we can point you to the direction of someone, not us. Um, people that will help you make wise decisions with your money. But Jesus spoke about money a lot, and so I think it's, you know, it can be a little bit of a taboo subject in church, but Jesus spoke about it a lot, and so I think it's important that we consider that as well. So give us this day our daily bread, reminds us that God is our provider. Then verse 12 says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this speaks of relationship. So when we ask God to forgive us, it gives us a clean slate with him. We can start over, we can remove any barriers between us and God, and it puts us in that right relationship with him, knowing that we are forgiven. God is all about restoration. He sent his son to die on the cross so that we could have that relationship with him. So it follows as well that God also wants us to have good relationships with each other. God forgives us every time. You know, Jesus was asked by Peter, how many times should we forgive someone? Peter suggested seven times because that was the Jewish custom. But Jesus answered 70 times, seven times. Any mathematicians quickly want to tell me how much that is? No, they're all rubbish. <laughs> it's 490. <laughs> 70 times, seven times. So was Jesus saying that we should count up how many times we forgive people and then when we get to 490, then we stop? No, he wasn't saying that at all. Jesus was using this as a metaphor for having an attitude of constant forgiveness. When people hurt us, we forgive them. But that doesn't mean that we let people walk all over us. It doesn't mean that um, you know, people can continue to hurt us and we put us in that position. We put ourselves in that position. But what it does mean is that we get to a place where we can let go of the hurts that people have put on us. Because at the end of the, at the, end of the day, the only person that is hurt by unforgiveness is the person who can't forgive. Proverbs 12, verse 28, in the Passion Translation, says... Abundant life is discovered by walking in righteousness, but holding on to your anger leads to death. So if we hold on to our anger, it only hurts us more. And the other person usually doesn't even realise we're angry with them. And I think it's important as well to note that forgiveness is not always a feeling. Usually it's a choice. We have to decide that we will forgive the person that's hurt us. And sometimes they'll hurt us again. And we have to choose to forgive them again. 
So Corrie Ten Boom said, forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. It can be hard to forgive, but we can make that choice even if we don't feel like it. Immediately after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says in verses 14 to 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But I don't actually think that this is about cause and effect. I don't think Jesus is saying that God will only forgive you if you forgive others, because we know that he's a forgiving God. But it means that when we don't forgive others, we're denying our common ground. We are all sinners in need of God's forgiveness. So we need to acknowledge that God forgives us, and also that we are in need of forgiveness. And so therefore, all of us are in need of forgiveness. So when we choose not to forgive someone, we're almost saying that we're above forgiveness for ourselves. We're putting ourselves in the position of God, who chooses to forgive every time. So if we choose not to forgive, it's because we don't have a full understanding of the nature of God's forgiveness as available for us all. But once we grasp that we are sinners in need of forgiveness, we can't deny that to other people as well. We must forgive others. We must get to grips with God's forgiveness being readily available to us, so therefore we must hold we can't hold it back from others. I know that forgiveness can be really hard. And you might not be able to do it all at once, but if you can maybe just forgive that person for one or two things and gradually choose to forgive them over time. Even taking a step towards it by asking God to help you get to a place where you can forgive. Even that is a step in the right direction and is a great thing to do. This is all about relationship. God wants to have a close relationship with us, but he also wants us to be in unity with each other, not bearing grudges. As it says in Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Relationship is key. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 13 says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations say, the evil one. And this is us asking for God's protection. I don't believe that God leads us into temptation, but I do believe that he allows us to be tempted for our own growth and development. So when we're saying lead us not into temptation, we're asking God to keep us focused on him throughout any trials that we go through. We're asking him to protect us. We're all imperfect humans, so as imperfect humans, we often get drawn into sin and we follow desires that are not good for us. God doesn't put these things in our way, but rather he allows us to experience them so that we can develop and grow in character. Your convictions are only strong if they hold up under pressure. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God allows us to experience suffering to make us stronger, but he makes it clear that he's with us throughout, and he gives us the strength that we need to endure it through his Holy Spirit. 
His protection is available to us, all of us. Remember, your convictions are only strong if they hold up under pressure. So to test that, you need a bit of pressure. All Christians struggle with temptation. And sometimes it's so subtle that we don't even realize what's happening until we see that it's got a hold on us. But graciously, God always provides us with a way out. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So the temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in the desert before he started his ministry, and he used the word of God to combat that. God always gives us an escape, and that is what part of the, this part of the Lord's Prayer reminds us. We're asking God to deliver us from temptation and evil. We're asking, his, we're asking for his protection from sin, which leads to death. And as I said, many translations use the phrase, deliver us from the evil one. As Gary was saying this morning, the devil is real. He's active. He's not figurative or symbolic. He's a deceiver. He's a destroyer. And he tries to do what he can to take us away from God. 1 Peter 5, 8-9 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there's some comfort in that, knowing that we're all experiencing these trials and temptations. We're all in this together. We should pray for each other too, that we can all resist that temptation and keep our eyes fixed on God for his protection. And then finally, some manuscripts add... For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we begin this prayer acknowledging God as holy and then we end it referencing God's power and his glory. So after all that God does for us, what is left but to praise him, to acknowledge that he is over all and above all. We thank him for all that he does. He gives us our identity as his children, calling us his own. He gives purpose and meaning to our lives. He provides for our every need. He forgives us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He protects us and he's with us through every trial. So I recently challenged myself to say the Lord's Prayer every day for a month. I set a reminder on my phone every morning and I slowly contemplated the words of the Lord's Prayer. And um, I found that God spoke to me with a different part of it every day. It was really bizarre. But each day I was drawn to kind of a different part of the Lord's Prayer. And, and God gave me a, kind of a highlighted bit to focus on for each day. So if I needed to forgive, then obviously that was the part that was highlighted to me. If I needed to focus on God's provision, that part was highlighted to me. And so I would just encourage you to challenge yourself to do the same thing. Just speak the Lord's Prayer each morning and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight the part that you need to be focusing on for that day and meditate on it over the day and see where God takes you with that. I also really like to read things in different versions. I think it gives you a different perspective on what is being said. So I'm going to close this morning by reading to you the Lord's Prayer from the Passion Translation. 
And again, I'd encourage you to look it up in other Bible translations and versions just for that wider perspective. So let's pray now. Our beloved Father, dwelling in the heavenly realms, may the glory of your name be the center on which our lives turn. Manifest your kingdom realm and cause your every purpose to be fulfilled on earth, just as it is in heaven. We acknowledge you as our provider of all we need each day. Forgive us the wrongs we have done, as we ourselves release forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Rescue us every time we face tribulation and set us free from evil. For you are the King who rules with power and glory forever. 